0: Good morning, Miss You. Uh, The passage today is from Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So we are uh, midway through a series entitled SPARK. And the purpose of this series is to explore practices, disciplines, habits, that spark in us greater love and affection. Practices that might do something in our heart that curates a greater sense of love. These are not practices about earning God's love or earning God's favor or earning our faith. No, no, no. These are practices that are actually for us, that do something positive in us. That as we engage in these practices, they might have a a way of engaging us in the love of God, helping us experience it more deeply, helping us know it more deeply. So far throughout this series, we've looked at the practices of rest, play, prayer, lament, and then last week, the practice of story or telling the Jesus story to those around us. And you can kind of see throughout these practices that there's been a bit of a journey from practices that are more internal or reflective or contemplative, kind of in that process, to practices that become more external. They connect us to people around us. They connect us to the world around us. They make us aware of what's happening in the world around us. And today, the practice that we are looking at, as you could probably get from the video or the scripture reading, is the practice of doing justice. I don't know what you think about when you hear the word justice. Because unfortunately, justice is one of those words that is loaded politically. It just means a lot to people in a cultural sense. It brings with it a lot of maybe political baggage or weightiness. And depending upon like your ideology or your orientation, you might hear something different when I use the word justice. It can invoke any set of different meanings. And those meanings might be really good and really positive. Like you might be like, yeah, I'm really for justice and justice-oriented causes, or you might hear it and you'd be like, no, I'm really mad at you now that you've used the word justice, and I'm frustrated that you've made this a political conversation, and now I feel like, you know, there's some triggering and some frustration in use of that word. And because it has so much, like, cultural weightiness, and because it is used so much as, like, a cultural term, I think we can miss and forget That that justice is a deeply theological idea. In fact, even when we're talking about justice in culture and in the world around us, we are pretty indebted to justice as a thing that Jesus talks about, as a thing that the scriptures talk about. As the Bible Project video shows, justice is this mega theme that runs throughout the biblical Narrative. And so, regardless of what feelings we have about the concept of justice, maybe we're triggered by it or we love it, either way, we have to wrestle with it as we engage the story of Jesus because the Bible is wrestling with the concept of justice all the time. Now, it's not always wrestling with it or describing it or explaining it in the same way that our culture talks about justice. Justice in the Bible and according to the way of Jesus is about restoration as the video showed. Another word for restoration you could use is that biblical justice or Jesus' justice is about wholeness. It's about things being made right, things being made whole. It is about healing. It is about the end of something and the beginning of something new. Sometimes I think when we talk about justice in our own culture, we talk about it in ways that are really punitive or retributive, Say it's someone paying for a crime that they have committed. Injustice, as the video shows, can include paying for a crime that has been committed, but it always goes further than that to restoration. Injustice can include things like forgiveness and things like repentance, but justice goes further than forgiveness and repentance to the repair of relationship at the end of the hard work. Of reconciliation. Justice is the other side of it. Or to say it differently, sometimes justice in our minds is an enemy losing a war, but justice according to the way of Jesus is there being no more enemies. It's not just that a, a war is ended or an enemy is defeated. It is that the things that make enemies in the world is overthrown and done away with and peace reigns justice is hopeful fundamentally in the way of jesus because it's about what comes at the end of that hard work it is about wholeness it is about beauty it is about life it is about restoration and redemption justice is one of the most beautiful hopes that runs throughout our faith and our story but it is not something that we simply hope in Justice is a work that God is doing and a work that God is inviting the church to participate in. We get to be a people of justice. And today I want to talk about that work of being a people of justice. But sometimes when we talk about doing justice, the, the conversation focuses on like who you're doing justice for or the social causes of justice, or the work around you of justice. And those are all good places to orient this conversation. But today, I want to talk about justice not as something external to us, but instead as a practice that is good for us. Justice as a, its own spiritual practice that shapes our faith, that actually puts us in the way of love where we ourselves might experience more of God's love through this Practice. I want to talk about justice as a thing that might spark in us greater love and greater affection. And so to do that, I have three big ideas today. Here's the first one. Justice is worship. Number two, justice strengthens our faith. And number three, justice enlarges our faith. So first up, justice is Worship. So the passage that we read at the beginning of today that Josh read for us comes from Micah chapter 6. And in that story, Micah is sort of having a conversation between the people of Israel and God. And the people of Israel are wondering, kind of after a a season of of not being very faithful to God, what kind of worship they should offer, what kind of life they should live, what kind of practice they should live. And this is what they ask in Micah 6 verse 6. With what should I approach the Lord? And how should I bow down before God on high? Should I come before Him with Entirely burned offerings with year old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with many torrents of oil? Will He take all of these acceptable offerings and sacrifices, all the normal practices of worship? Will God be pleased with animal sacrifices and the oil that I offer? Even should I give my oldest child for the crime that I've committed? Should I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my spirit? The prophet responds to the people of Israel saying, God has told you, humans, what it is good and what the Lord requires from you to do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. What kind of worship does God ask of the people in the book of Micah? Justice. In a similar conversation, the other Old Testament prophet named Amos has a really intense, even a further intense conversation with the people of Israel. And in Amos chapter 5, verse 21, the prophet records God saying this to the people of Israel. I hate, I hate, I reject your festivals. I do not enjoy your joyous assemblies. Sometimes when I read that, it's hard for me to imagine God speaking in that way. Like the people of Israel are gathering for a cool worship service, and God is like, I hate this. (laughs) You sing that song one more time. (laughs) Take away the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. Instead, what does God ask of the people of Israel? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I'm tired of these forms of worship. I want justice. And again, one more example later in the New Testament, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the most religious, the most astute, the holy leaders of the people of Israel. And in Luke 11, Jesus criticizes their worship and asks for justice. He says this, How terrible for you Pharisees You give a tenth of your mint, your rue, and your garden herbs of all kinds. This is the tithes or the offerings that the people of Israel were asked to give to God and to give to the temple. Jesus says, you do these things. You give your tithes. You give your offerings. And how terrible it is for you Pharisees. Because while you give these things, you neglect justice and love for God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. I read you these three passages just in quick succession because what I want to illustrate is first and foremost how much God cares about justice how much God asks his people to be a people of justice. Over and above, being a people of other kinds of worship or with other forms of worship, God is like, I care about justice. And actually, if your worship neglects the practice of justice, I'm uninterested in the other expressions of worship. They are empty without justice. And so we could say that the easiest reason for being a people who practice justice is because God repeatedly tells us to. In some ways, I could just end the sermon right there. That's that's enough of it. God says, do justice. Over and over again, God tells us to do justice. But what I think is fascinating is that in each of these passages, that, that justice is commanded of the people of Israel or of the church, it is connected to worship. Worship and justice are always going hand in hand. And when you think about worship, there's going to be two different things to think about. Worship is, on one hand, an action that we do that brings attention to God. It's an action that we do that brings notice or fame or gives glory or magnifies our God. So when we live a life that is pleasing to God, it is worship. When we tell the story of God, we're pointing people to God. That's worship. But worship is also, at the same time, about encountering God's presence. That's always true throughout the story. So the people of Israel, when they go to worship, they enter into the temple or they go to the tabernacle and they do the acts of sacrifices. They offer the oils. They offer the burnt offerings. And the reason for that is they're hoping to have an encounter with the presence of God in the temple. God said that he would dwell in that temple and they were going to have an encounter with God there. So worship is about magnifying God and it's about having an encounter with the presence of God. So for Israel, that's sacrifices, that's prayers, that's entering into the temple. They do those things hoping to encounter the presence of God. But in these passages, God is telling us that if we want to meet God, if we want to have an experience with the presence of God, If we want to magnify God, do justice. If you want to have an encounter with the presence of God, I just think this is the most important thing I can say today. If you want to have an encounter with the presence of God, God is like, go do justice. Go love your neighbor as yourself. That's where you're going to have an encounter with the presence of God, where you'll enter into worship and where your worship will become embodied and alive and full of presence is in the work of justice. Jesus says this very thing in a very famous passage in Matthew 25, verse 34. In this passage, Jesus is uh, telling this story And he's giving himself the perspective. He's the king and it's kind of the end of all things and the king is sitting in judgment. And this is that moment when Jesus says, when I was hungry, you fed me. And it picks up here in verse 34. Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then those who had been named righteous will reply to God. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or when were you thirsty and we gave you a drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or when were you naked and we gave you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then King Jesus will reply to them, I assure you that when you have done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. When you do justice, you are encountering the presence of God in others. When you do justice, you're encountering the presence of God in others, which fundamentally flips what we think about justice up on its head. Oftentimes, justice can be an expression of our own power. And it can be a way in which we like, uphold our own moral superiority or a way that we like, save those around us. But by flipping justice up on its head and saying, this is a way that you have an encounter with the presence of God, it makes us humble recipients of what's happening around us. Oh, we enter into this work for the encounter with the presence of God. Not as rescuers, not as saviors, but as humble worshipers who know they might encounter Jesus as they do the work of justice. So, Missio, we do justice because it is worship. It is where and how we encounter the presence of God around us. Number two, justice strengthens our faith. In uh, James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, the author James is writing a letter to a little church, and he says this, My brothers and sisters, what good is it if people say they have faith but do nothing to show it. Claiming to have faith can't save anyone, can it? Imagine a brother or sister who is naked and never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal? What good is it if you don't actually give them what their body needs? In the same way, faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. This, like the passage that we've already read, is another one of those very famous passages. And it, for many, can evoke some anxiety and some stress. Because it often leads to like a theological conversation. Like, if I don't do faithful things, does that mean I don't have faith? Does that mean I can lose my faith? Does that mean I earn my faith? And I think the truth is that this passage is not about what God does. God stays consistent regardless of what we do. That's kind of the good news of the gospel. So God loves us no matter what we do. That God's relationship to us is consistent no matter what we do, that God saves us no matter what we do. That stays the same. So, the weight and the onus when it's switched in this passage, I think the dynamic that's being described in this passage is something that happens in our own heart. That without work, our own spiritual heart suffers, it grows weak, and can even die. To say it differently, you could say it like this, that faith without works is like a muscle that atrophies without movement. That faith without works is like a muscle that atrophies without movement. All that God has said is true. God's love is true. God's call is true and consistent and steadfast. That doesn't change. The question is whether or not our faith gets to live in it. It takes about three weeks for a muscle to lose strength. And if you have an injury, that can happen even faster. I remember that after I tore my ACL, the thing I noticed the most is the weakness of my hamstring. Like I couldn't like bend my leg up like this. It was like a week after I started having difficulties. And then three weeks of having like that full cast on, you're like, oh, nope, there's no movement here in terms of how fast your muscle begins to atrophy. I think I'm two years out, and I still feel like my hamstring is really weak. It's not for lack of trying. Faith is like that. It's like a muscle that needs to be stretched, that needs to be worked, that needs to be moved, otherwise it will atrophy and grow weak. And the way that our faith is worked, the way that our faith is stretched, the way that our faith is practiced, according to James, is works of justice, works of love, caring for those around you. I think today, we think the way that faith is worked primarily is via knowledge. So it's like, you want to grow in your faith, we think the way to do that is by learning. Learning is amazing. Reading is amazing. But I think I fall into this trap. Like if you come to me and you're like, I have some questions about my faith, most likely what's going to happen is I'm going to give you a book. If you've you've ever met with me, you know that's probably true. Right? And it's like we think that if we learn enough things that most of the, the answers of our faith or the questions of our faith or the struggles of our faith will get worked out. Now, knowledge is so important. Learning more about God is so important. I'm not trying to create a dichotomy between the two. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And I think if we continue to use the muscle analogy, that's profound, that love is the thing that builds or strengthens or develops a muscle. Just learning about fitness does not make you fit. Okay, <laughs> how many articles you read about lifting weights, it doesn't mean that you're growing stronger. Love builds up, whereas knowledge puffs up. For our faith to mature, for our faith to grow, for our faith to be made stronger, we need practices that actually stretch it, that actually grow it. And those are the practices of justice, the practices of getting our hands on our faith. I think when we look at the church around us, and so often, the response that I hear as we talk about the church is like a lot of frustration. Like, and there's a lot of reasons to be frustrated that the like, broad American church around us. And I think that what we are seeing and what we are frustrated about is an atrophied faith. It's a faith that knows a lot of things, that knows a lot of answers, that has a lot of right answers to the questions that we are asking, but because it is a puffed-up faith, it is not a built-up faith, it is not a strong faith, and as Paul says in Ephesians 4, it is then a faith that is tossed to and fro by every ideology or political movement or frustration that comes around. It is not a strong faith, and I think that's because it is a faith that does not practice justice. It is a faith that does not get its hands dirty in the work of love. It is a faith that does not get embodied or stretched. And so faith is, justice is a practice of worship, and justice enlarges or strengthens our faith. And then finally, number three, justice enlarges our faith. I think because our faith is often reduced to believing the right things and not necessarily doing the right things, what that means is that faith sort of gets trapped in our heads. And things that are trapped in our heads too long have a tendency to, you could say, metastasize. The philosopher Richard Rorty has this really uh, pithy quote that I think is funny and true of this moment. He writes that disengagement from practice produces theoretical hallucinations. I think there's two ways this happens that will illustrate this. I think one way is that when faith only lives in our head and it never gets into our bodies, it never gets into our communities, it never gets into the work around us, something that can get produced in us is cynicism or judgmentalism. Our faith can become cynical and judgmental. So in one case, our faith becomes this expression of our own moral superiority because it's like we're forgetting how hard it is to actually live this faith. And when you never live faith, and you never have the awkward experiences of living faith, and you never fail in your faith, quote-unquote fail in your faith, then you don't often extend grace to others who are struggling to live and navigate the realities of their faith. It's like it lives in a lab. It's easy to be critical when you are behind a plexiglass. It's much harder to be critical of lived faith when you are living faith kind of reminds me of like the guy who knows everything about women but has never been in a relationship. Yeah, You're laughing because you know that person. Or the person who criticizes someone's healing work or recovery work but is not doing the risk of healing in their own work. It's easy to become judgmental or critical when our faith does not get lived. I think the other way that this can play out is that we come to a place where faith can't be something that we just believe in and so we reject it. Or we shrink our faith in how much hope we have and how much we believe in. I think, just as an honest confession, I've been here before is that when my faith isn't getting lived out in the world around me, I find that I can start to believe that God works less in the world around me. I can start to wonder, does God really change lives? If I'm not participating in anybody's life being changed. I start to wonder, does God heal if I'm not participating in any healing work? I start to wonder, has God at work in this place the way the Bible says, the way our faith says, but I'm never seeing it because my faith lives isolated and alone. Do I believe that God really acts? Do I really believe that mercy can triumph? And because I'm not living out my faith, I'm just learning about my faith. I'm not living out my faith. I think what happens is my faith then actually gets smaller. I have to like shrink it down because I'm not seeing anything. So to hold on to it, I have to like shrink it down so that it's manageable or eventually I think often we just reject it because we don't see it getting lived. We don't see it in the world around us. The writer of 1 John addresses this saying, in 1 John 3 verse 18. Little children, Let's not love with words or speech, but with action and truth. Why? Because this is how we know that we belong to the truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and reassure our hearts in God's presence. The writer of John is saying, like, if you are wrestling with whether you are in God's presence or whether the truth is true about you and true about God and true about the world around you, he says love with actions, it reassures you of God's presence because you're encountering God's presence in worship. It reminds you of the truth and speaks it to you in a way that is deeper and more visceral than just your head, but into the rest of your very being. When you love, when you do justice, it assures your heart of God's presence. It reminds you of the truth. To say it another way, when you do justice, you get to taste and see that the kingdom is real, that it might actually break in around you, that God's work might be true, that what God declares might be true, that when you get your hands on it and start to live it out, even in small, imperfect ways, Things been, the ways that you might want to write off is as the kingdom begins to break out. We have a ministry at Missio called Change Groups. And the unofficial slogan of Change Group has often been that risk brings change. So I love that phrase, risk brings change. Sometimes life can feel deeply claustrophobic, like you're kind of like locked into something, that you're trapped in something. There are a lot of reasons that can be true. Your beliefs can feel claustrophobic, addiction or anxiety or pain. All those things can cause this feeling of trappedness, this feeling of claustrophobia. And the slogan implies its truth where it says just a little risk, a small risk, a small action can disrupt that claustrophobia. It can disrupt that feeling of being stuck. Just a little action can be like, oh, maybe change is possible. Maybe something else is possible. A little risk can reveal something else is possible. I think that's why Jesus compares faith to a mustard seed. It's like little risks in faith are little seeds that eventually take over the whole garden. It doesn't require much effort. It doesn't require large gestures, just small actions. Sow the seeds that eventually take over the plot. And those small acts of risk that start to evoke in us change, they begin to help us see something new, that the kingdom might be real in the midst of us. We need practices of justice. Because our faith desperately needs to see that the kingdom might be real. It's like we need to do a few experiments and see what the result of the experiment is, but our faith never gets to that stage of experimentation, of testing, of trial, of action, of risk. But those small risks, those small actions, those mustard seed-like faith begin to disrupt the world around us and assure our hearts of the presence of God. Missio, What if we took little risks in justice as a community? What if we took little risks in justice, little risks in loving our neighbors, little risks in loving those around us, little risks in encountering the presence of God around us? I think we might stretch. I think it might feel strange, like standing up on an atrophied hamstring. Like it might feel like a strange experience at first. That's why it's a risk. It feels frightening. It feels strange. It feels hard to do. So it might stretch us. It might challenge us. It might push our muscles into places that they haven't always gone or they haven't gone in a long time. But at the same time, Missio, I think if we were to take little risks in justice, we might also taste And see that Jesus' kingdom is possible and real and breaking in around us. I might we might see the hope of Jesus emerging in this world and in our own lives even. So Mr. Just have one question that I think we should reflect on as we close today. where can you risk injustice this week? Justice is the work of wholeness. It's the work of restoration. So where can you risk in wholeness and restoration this week? Maybe it looks like repairing a relationship, to get to the repair stage of a relationship. Maybe it looks like one of the practices that we've already explored in this series rest and play. We both name those. Those are sometimes protest practices. They're works of justice. And so maybe it's about resting. It is about playing. Maybe it's about lamenting. Lament name something and acknowledges something. Or maybe it's about the practice of prayer because prayer submits us to God and awakens us to what God is doing. And so maybe it's just spending some time this week praying that God would show you where to go. But Monsieur, where can you risk in wholeness and in restoration this week? What would that look like? Would you take that question? And as we continue to worship and as we continue to celebrate and as we gather at the table, would you bring it to the table? We gather at the table every single week because it is a place where in small we get to taste and see Jesus' work. It's like a practice of justice where you get your hands on it. You get to touch it. You get to taste it. You get to feel that it's true. And so would you bring that question with you to the table and ask God, where can I risk this week? Take the bread, the physical symbol of God's forgiveness, of God's kingdom, of God's justice, and take the cup and ask God, where can we risk in this and make the kingdom real. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are steadfast, true, and good. That in you we see the ultimate picture of the justice of God. A justice that makes way for forgiveness, a justice that makes way for righteousness, a justice that makes way for wholeness, A justice that somehow converts enemies into friends and family and followers of you. And so today, Jesus, deeply centered on you, deeply centered on the goodness of you, deeply centered on the love of you for us, that is steadfast and consistent. Would we risk injustice knowing that there's no failure here? There's an experience of your love and an encounter with you available. Spirit, would you reveal in us those places where we can risk? Where we can repair and move towards restoration, where we can pay attention and encounter the presence of you. And Spirit, through all of it, would you lead us to places where the table, the kingdom, would become a a place where we get to taste and see. We'd actually get to see it. Our faith needs it. Our hearts need it. And I think the world around us needs that. God, we ask these things in your name. Amen.